As we left off in our study in Deuteronomy here in chapter 5, we are right in the middle of Moses' second sermon, if you would, as these series of farewell speeches he delivered to the Yex generation now. This is the younger generation that will go into the promised land after he dies under the leadership of Joshua. And we now come into his second sermon, which began sort of at the end of chapter four and is now including a reiteration of what we know as the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments given uh, originally in Exodus chapter 20 as Moses came down from the mountain there with the tablets originally to the prior generation. This is now the younger generations whose parents have died off and Moses now throughout the book of Deuteronomy is repeating many spiritual truths and now he is again rehearsing for the younger generation these Ten Commandments as well. Last time we looked at the first four of those commandments here in chapter 5 and again as we talked about the 10 commandments are as we discussed back in Exodus 20 basically broken really in almost sort of two uh, tables if you would the first four commandments deal with man's relationship directly with God on the vertical level uh, that we would have no other gods before him that we would not make any carved image or worship God in a way other than what he has prescribed us to uh, that we wouldn't take his name in vain in any way in our lives and that the Jews of course were to honor the Sabbath as that was a special covenant God gave to them as his people uh, to honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy to rest to reflect upon God and of course for you and I that Sabbath is that beautiful picture of how we ultimately would not have a Sabbath day but that we would have a Sabbath life that we would have rest in Christ, that we would cease from our labors to try and get ourselves right with God initially or even keep ourselves right with God by performance or works or behavior, but instead we trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ by faith to have our rest and peace with God within our soul and just the beautiful picture that the Sabbath foreshadowed. Now the second half of the law or the, or the Ten Commandments, excuse me, uh, the remaining six commandments, which we'll pick up now here in verse 16, these deal, the remaining six, with man's relationship with fellow man on the horizontal level. Uh, God wanted us to love him supremely, you could say, the first four commandments, to worship him and love him supremely, and then that we secondarily would, then on a second level, would respect and show love uh, and, and proper relationship with one another, uh, fellowship among humanity. So uh, the first one comes to us there in verse 16. And this, of course, would be the fifth commandment, and that is there, chapter 5, verse 16. He says, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may be well with you, God says, in the land in which the Lord your God is giving you. So uh, the fifth commandment here, uh, the first of the second half dealing with relationship among humanity emphasizes the importance of honoring parental authority. Uh, of children recognizing that God has created by design this order of the parental role where the parents would be having God's authority in their lives from him and a stewardship over their children. As a result of that, it was important to God that his authority in the role of the parent be recognized, be appreciated, and be responded and related to properly 
as the children would relate to their parents. So here God speaks of honoring the parental authority as the representative of God's authority. Uh, and really th this pertains in two dynamics in a sense, I, I think you could say, honor your father and your mother, uh, the command being given here. I think there's sort of a, as this is sort of a joint relationship, parent-child, uh, there are two things important in this. First of all, that parents need to require honor. And they need to require obedience. Uh, ultimately, this command is reiterated in the New Testament, Ephesians 6, where there Paul says, children, obey your parents as is fitting in the Lord. And then he quotes this very verse from the Ten Commandments, you shall honor your father and your mother. And there, the word honor is pictured or, or translated into the aspect of obedience, that the way that children, especially younger children under the age of adulthood, certainly should manifest that honor to their parents very simply is through sheer obedience, which means that you obey commands, that you respect what is asked of you, that you don't do things that you're told that you're not supposed to, and that you do fulfill obligations and things that are asked and required of you under the authority of the parental role. And the way that you would show that honor to God and that it was God's authority given to the parent in the household for the benefit of the family and the child and their rearing and upbringing is that you would obey the parents. That you would. So parents, understanding that, were to have the backbone and the proper understanding of love and that stewardship that they wouldn't give way to feelings and undue compassion towards their kids and want to be their buddy or friend or always keep them happy and be liked and therefore at times would, uh, if you would, sort of acquiesce and allow the children to, in a sense, not be required to obey. Uh, and to have the option or the freedom to choose when they wanted to obey and when they didn't want to obey. And that they had the option to be disrespectful when they wanted to be disrespectful, whether in speech or behavior. And, and, and I think it's important in this that parents need to understand that we must require honor. We must require obedience. And of course, then the role of the child in this command is that children need to respond and relate properly by doing exactly what God says, by being obedient, uh, that they need to relate to their parent in that way and respond to their parent in that way. Uh, if not, we need to understand this, if not, we're raising rebels. And, and God understood for the nation of Israel that, that that just wouldn't be healthy. In fact, remember, there are places in the law where God speaks of children being disrespectful and dishonoring their parents. And do you remember what it was? It was a capital offense. You were stoned to death if you disobeyed or rebelled against your parents. So again, you know, God was very clear. God was not going to have much toleration for rebellious children because God understood that's not just something that makes a difficult life for a parent or for a family. If those children became rebellious within the home life, they would become rebellious in the society and ultimately they would become completely rebellious against God. And God would have none of that. And you know, I'll tell you, you, you stoned to death one or two little punks in a village, and pretty quick, everybody's smart mouth gets cleaned up at home, right? I mean, it was certainly, it was a very, you know, I mean, again, it wasn't that God was, God understood how this works. You know, hey, did you hear about what happened to Johnny? <laughs> I told him not to back talk to his mama like that, you know, to, Shame, shame to see him get stoned last weekend, you know, what, and not stoned in that way, you know, he shouldn't have got stoned that way, and that's why he got stoned the other way, you know, 
But, but God understood this would be a great deterrent for the culture. And, and God understood the reality that by nature we are rebellious. The Bible says in Proverbs that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And the rod of correction will drive it far from them. So we have to understand, by nature we're all rebels. And yes, our children are beautiful and adorable and they're cute and all that. But by nature, they are fallen little sinners. And when we bring a child into this world, we need to realize part of that role as a parent is we have brought another sinner into this world. We brought someone else into this world that by nature will be rebellious. And but they will be prone to foolishness. And we just need to understand that graciously and give them the latitude. And even understanding, look, it's okay to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. You, know, you should anticipate your children rebelling and doing what's wrong. You really should. But you must also understand that you cannot just permit that. It must be addressed with consistency and with love and in a way whereby it's clearly defined and understood who is the role in authority and who is the one that is to respond and to respect that authority. And that's what makes a healthy home life. And listen, that's ultimately what makes the benefit of the child because look at the, 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 the promise of God there. He says that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land the Lord is giving you. God knew that this dynamic and command for the parent the child and the family unit would bless households. It would People would live well. They would do better individually. Because see, if a child does not learn how to respect God's authority in the parent, then they won't respect the authority that exists in whatever, the school system, the society, law enforcement, and then ultimately they'll look right in the face of God, their creator, and they'll rebel against God. And that's why we have to understand as parents that we do a great disservice to our children if we tolerate their rebellion and we allow it rather than addressing and realizing we are called to drive this out of them through correction consistently in a way that is healthy and is appropriate. So again, this is important in the earlier days and of course God uses this and lays it out as well as we go through the New Testament scriptures so that that honor of the parent, even into adulthood, carries on to caring for parents at latter stages of life and realizing that there's an honor to be returned to them because they've cared for us, they've done things for us, and so therefore, at a certain point, yes, life begins to transition. And then that honor plays itself out in the fact that you have invested into me, you have poured into me, you have provided for me and cared for me, therefore, I'm duty-bound to now do the same as the roles almost, and you watch, you know, as parents age and, and children come up, it, it's almost, some of you have maybe perhaps walked through there right, where it's almost like a role reversal as they age and that, but that's something that God says, wonderful. That's honoring them. That's honoring who they are and the special role they've had in your life. And that's something that God sees very important and very honorable as well. So this first command, of course, addressing the family unit, the health of it as the stability to the uh, really the rock of society, the bedrock of society. Verse 17, he then gives the sixth commandment, which is you shall not murder. And again, the idea here is how God values highly human life. And so this was a command basically to protect the sanctity or we might say the sacredness of life in a culture. 
Again, when the Bible says you shall not murder, this is not referring to you know, killing in war for legitimate purposes. There are times when God would command people to enter into military conflict. Murder is the taking of innocent, unarmed life. That's what murder is. Murder is a conscious choice to take the life, the sacredness of the life of someone created in the image of God and to take that innocent life that is vulnerable and unable to protect itself and is unarmed. That's murder. And because God values human life, all people, God will not tolerate or excuse the destroying of innocent life. Again, this was a capital crime in Israel, if you remember. This was a capital crime according to the law. In fact, prior to the law, Genesis 9, God said, if man sheds the blood of fellow man, then by man his blood shall be shed. The idea is capital punishment. Doesn't mean a person can't be forgiven. But God values the sanctity of life. And so important that he wanted life valued in that way in Israel. Again, and how often we need to realize, boy, we can be guilty. I mean, look, look at our culture. Look at the chaos and the brutality of where our culture is digressing to. The devaluing of the sacredness of human life. Whether it's murdering innocent children in the womb. Whether it's murdering people who are on the streets or doing nothing. Whether it's terroristic acts of walking into public places or school systems. The greatest form of cowardice. There is no greater form of cowardice than to walk into a public setting and to begin to brutally murder and kill innocent, unarmed people. That does not make you a hero. That makes you a coward. And I don't think people like that should even be acknowledged. They shouldn't even get the press or media that they get. Because they completely violate something that is so sacred to God and so valuable as they destroy and take innocent life. So again, this was critical. God wanted human life valued and this command protected the value of life. The next command, obviously, protects the value of the marriage institution in culture. Another bedrock thing in society he says, you shall not, verse 18, commit adultery. So the seventh commandment there, God shows us that he has a very high regard for the value and the purpose of the marriage relationship. That God wanted that relationship preserved and protected, that there would be no infidelity, uh, that the marriage uh, bed would be honored and undefiled, and God says in his word in Hebrews, but yet fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Again, another capital crime in Jewish culture according to the law, that if the adulterer or the adulteress was exposed, that they were to actually lose their lives in the culture. Again, God was protecting disregard and destruction of marriage relationships because the marriage relationship keep in mind is what it is the first institution that God brought to humanity the very first prior to the fall prior to, it is the only institution keep this in mind as we live in a culture in our own nation today where even these very things like the Ten Commandments are wanting to be cast aside as something horrible for our society, something horrific that we would consider to use in our courthouses, in our judicial system, or in our school systems, or for our society's you know, fiber work. Keep in mind, the marriage relationship, which we are trying to redefine, that is the only thing that we have that comes from the other side of the fall of sin. Genesis 2 is where marriage came. Genesis 3 was where sin entered humanity. It's the only thing we have. 
And yet it's the one thing that we have shown such tremendous disregard for changing it. And, and even the disregard in the sense that we live in an extremely promiscuous and loose culture where people's covenant of marriage and people's respect for the marriage relationship of other people is very disesteemed. It's very disesteemed. And I was just talking to someone from our fellowship yesterday who was, you know, thankfully not someone from the church, but we just were in the midst of conversation and he was describing being at a, you know, social gathering or function and describing, you know, a, a woman who he was sitting there watching, you know, with a fellow business associate, you know, sitting on his lap, married man, sitting on his lap, drinking drinks together. And he, so, so he said, I, just, I walked, just walked over to him. I said, well, did you, you know, say, uh, how's your wife doing? because that's the kind of brazen culture that we live in today and, and quite honestly I think sometimes there needs to be a, a brazenness in our righteousness to me that would have perhaps been the appropriate line hey Bob how's your wife doing by the way I haven't seen her in a while you know but, but here God says look you shall not commit adultery the marriage relationship is to be honored. There's to be faithfulness. There's to be commitment to that covenant. And there's to be a preservation and a protection from others from tampering with or in any way trying to defile the marriage relationship of another person. Verse 19, the next commandment God gives is you shall not steal. So again, there's the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. And the idea again, taking something that's not rightfully ours. Uh, the Jews were not to in any way take something that was not rightfully theirs, whether it was money or property or possessions in some way. And again, stealing also includes not fulfilling obligations that were properly owed. I mean, th that's a, a, a version of stealing as well, that we would not fulfill some obligation, whether it's you know paying our bills or some obligation that we know that we owe in some way. Uh, Romans 13 says that we should owe no man anything except a debt of love uh, and that we should not steal. And, and there are many different ways that we do this. Again, whether you know, it, it's just small little way. You know what the, one of the highest ranking forms of theft is in our country? It's employee theft. Employee theft. No, I just, it's just a pencil. Is it your pencil? It was just a stapler. I mean, we have so many staplers in the office. And we need to realize in our conscience when something's not rightfully ours, it's not ours to take. It belongs to someone else. And again, here God is saying, look, you respect the property of someone else. If something's not rightfully yours, unless you're going to ask for permission to take it, you should not take it. It does not belong to you. Oh, well, I mean, it's just, it's just going to sit there and get wasted. Is it yours? And did you ask if it's okay? If you've asked and they say yes, well, then fine. But to take something that's not ours is to steal. And there are many ways that we can do this. And Ephesians 4 says, uh, ultimately to the Christian, that he who stole, it says, you should steal no longer, but instead work and labor that you might instead have something to share that rather than taking things, we would become those who are givers and seeking to bless and to help others. So again here, all of these things, so many of them, we find them reiterated the principles in the New Testament for us as well. The ninth commandment there, verse 20, deals with integrity and honesty. He says, you shall not bear false witness 
against your neighbor. So again, that ninth commandment there, that there's not to be lying. They weren't to be making false accusations as they would meet uh, judicially. And again, the Bible says in the Old Testament that the way they were to validate things that happened by the mouth of two or three witnesses, things would be established. So God said, look, we're not going to just go in the word of one person because God knows the, the, the temperament of humanity. And how people love to try and embellish things or, or be dishonest in regards to things. So there was a need for two or three witnesses, but it was serious because words are powerful. And so God said there was to be no false accusations, no lying. Why? Because those things are destructive. Again, Ephesians 4 deals with this issue that we're no longer to lie to one another because when we lie to one another, boy, that, that, that causes very destructive, painful things. Or if we lie about someone and we give a false report and we can really make someone else's life tremendously miserable and cause severe damage. So God told them that they were to be honest, they were to have integrity, they were to be people who spoke the truth. And then the 10th and final commandment, of this top 10 list, if you would, verse 21, was you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor. Now, this 10th commandment, notice, if you haven't before, it's, it's a very unique commandment. All the other commandments, if you think about them and you look at them, have to deal with actions, behaviors, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not murder. Those are all things that were evident and that you could see. Now, I understand, and Jesus ultimately deals with this, but in their day, they weren't receiving this yet, that we understand now where we're at, that, that there was the heart behind the law as well. Because remember, Jesus ultimately said, you have heard that it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you've looked at woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery from God's perspective. In other words, God looks at that and says, look, you're just as guilty. You just by the grace of God didn't act upon it like the guy did over here who's destroyed and, and ravaged his marriage. But from God's perspective, the guilt was still the same. In other words, God was dealing with the issue through Jesus's words of the fact that the law went much deeper into the heart. It wasn't just the action of sin, it also was even the desire to sin. And see, this is where the 10th commandment becomes unique in that sense that notice the 10th commandment doesn't deal with an action, it deals with an inward attitude. I can't see when Rick is coveting my fine clothing. <laughs> I was going to say physique, but I've tried to be a little more <laughs> humble because I might have got rebuked afterwards. I can't see that. If somebody murders, I can see that. I can't see somebody coveting. You can't see someone because coveting is what? Coveting is that inward desire. It's a lack of contentment that makes us yearn for something that we don't have. That's what coveting is. Coveting is a yearning and in a strong craving and desire for something that we don't have that someone else does. And we wish we had it. And it's in that lack of contentment. This is what coveting is. So that's why he says here, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Again, looking at someone else's wife, looking at someone else's marriage. Well, I wish I had the marriage they had. Boy, I wish my wife 
look the way his wife did or dress the way his wife did. I wish my husband treated me the way he, he treats her. It's coveting. Oh, look at the house they have. You know, oh, boy, I mean, where are we live in this thing? And look what they have. Or you know, look what they drive. Or look at the position they have. Or the financial status. Or the opportunity. Oh, that person. Well, I wish I had their role. And again, we, we don't say it outwardly. But it's something that happens in here. And remember, this is the commandment that Paul the Apostle, Romans chapter 7, said was the commandment that finally made Paul realize he was a sinner. Because Paul in Romans chapter 7 says this, Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, Do not covet. But sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire. In other words, once the Bible said, Paul, you can't covet, you're not allowed to have what you don't want, then Paul said, but then I just wanted it more. <laughs> then I realized, oh my goodness. You mean I got... I can't think those things even though nobody else can see them. I'm not doing it, God. I'm not acting upon it. And Paul, as he talked about this seventh commandment, or excuse me, this tenth commandment in Romans 7, he said, it was this command when I realized, you mean to tell me that even though I don't act on sin, just the desire to sin within, that makes me guilty? And God said, yup. And Paul went, oh my goodness. I'm a wretch then. I'm undone. You mean, God, you're holding me accountable for what's happening in my heart, for what's happening in my mind, even if I don't act upon it? You shall, I heard it said, shall not murder, but if you, if you have intense anger in your heart where you could murder somebody? And God says, yep. And Paul, all of a sudden, was undone and realized at that point, oh, no, I'm totally unrighteous. I'm a lawbreaker. I'm, I'm just as guilty as the murderer or the adulterer or the person who's done you know, perjury or false accusations or who's you know, worshipped another God. I'm just as guilty because Paul realized that he struggled with covetous like everybody struggles with that particular sin. Where at times we're all discontent and have covetousness towards other things that we don't have but yet yearn for and want. And again, as God is addressing this, it just brought out that reality here, this 10th commandment, which is sort of the catch-all, that it was not just outward action. And of course, the New Testament ultimately points out that reality through the words of Christ and our greater understanding from a New Testament perspective that the law of God would not be a way for man to become righteous or saved, but it would become a mirror that revealed to humanity God's holiness and their sinfulness and that we're all lawbreakers. That's why the God gave the law and the very next thing we saw him give as we've been studying the Old Testament is what? The sacrificial system to make atonement for their failures and their sins every time they realize it again. We just broke the law again. We just broke the law again. And they realized how holy God was and how unholy we are as people. So yes, it was a moral code, but as well it was that mirror to reveal to them they could not meet the holy standards of a holy God to cause that healthy fear and reality in their own hearts regarding their condition. Paul uh, Moses goes on here, verse 22, to say, These are the words which the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice and he added no more and he wrote them again notice we've said before notice God wrote the commandments wasn't Moses 
etching them out in stone. God wrote them by the finger of God on the two tablets of stone and then he gave them to me. Again, notice the words of God, the Ten Commandments, they were engraved in stone. God wrote them, he engraved them in stone and then he gave them to Moses. I think it's just a a visual reminder there. They were etched in stone. They were unalterable. They weren't changed. These weren't Ten Commandments that would be good for one generation or people group in Israel, but somehow wouldn't fit for future generations and for other cultures. And again, unfortunately, that's the mistake that we want to make when the Bible says, and again, not just the Ten Commandments, but all of the Word of God, your Word, O Lord, is eternal, settled in the heavens forever. Look, it's etched in eternal rock, in the rock of ages, who does not change who says, this is the truth, this is my word, and it does not need to be adjusted to accommodate the desires and preferences of people in cultures and society. This is the mistake, I tell you, that we are making in the United States of America, in our judicial system, and quite honestly, not our own country, but this is the country that we live in, where we think that because people have desires or preferences or cravings, all things which are sinful aspects of all of us in humanity, that we need to somehow alter not only just the laws of our land, that's one thing, but to even alter the law of God, which is extremely dangerous. And God says that that, that's a foolish endeavor. It just shows the depravity of our humanity and it really just shows really the spiral downward that we're going to continue to take if we do those things. Again, these things were etched in stone. God does not change them to accommodate our desires, our preferences. They are his word. They stand. They have a purpose to reveal to us God's standards in our own sinfulness before a holy God and what is right morally and righteously. Verse 23, Moses says, And so it was, when you heard that voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. Now, therefore, the people said, Moses said, you said, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, then we shall die. Do you get the sense that the people at the presence of God were overwhelmed? I mean, the presence of God there at Mount Horeb, the, the consuming fire and the glory and the voice of God speaking forth these things, as these people were having an encounter with the living God, they, truth, they were shaking in their boots. They were terrified. They were overwhelmed at the presence of God. You want to you know, talk about why the Bible says in Ecclesiastes that we should stand in awe of God. This is what the fear of God is about, is these people heard the voice of God speaking forth these commandments and the presence of God being manifest among them. It was an overwhelming experience. It brought just a fearful reality. They said, we've heard God's voice and and we felt like we were going to die. I mean, they literally thought they were going to die. Here we are still alive. We have heard the voice of God and and we've realized, wow, we have heard the voice of the living God and have not died. Verse 26, they say, 
For who is there of all flesh who has heard, look at it, the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? They were shocked. Look what they say, verse 27. You go near. Moses, how about you take the brunt for us? <laughs> They're always volunteering him for something. You go near. And hear all that the Lord our God may say, and then tell us what the Lord our God says to you, and we will hear and do it. Now, I want you to notice this, because this pictures something very beautiful, which ultimately, of course, becomes a New Testament reality that we understand regarding the law of God. They, as they had this experience, realized the awesomeness, the holiness of God. They realized their own unholiness they are terrified they think they're going to die so what do they do here in verse 27 they say Moses you go near for us you go for us and then you come back and bring God's word to us but Moses you stand between us and God what are they doing they're crying out for a mediator they're saying Moses you go as a mediator on our behalf and stand in the gap for us. You go hear what God says and bring it back to us because they realize the holiness and greatness of God and their own depravity. And see, this is indication that the law is doing its job because technically that's what the law of God is supposed to do. The law of God is supposed to bring us to a place. Romans 3 says that the law was never intended to make man righteous, but it makes us conscious of our own sin. It makes us realize that all the world is guilty before God. Yes, it was a moral code, standards of righteousness for what God desires for humanity, absolutely. But the law of God for Israel and for you and I today, especially from a New Testament perspective, we understand that the law of God, the Bible says in the New Testament, was like a tutor to bring a person to Christ. The law of God's job was to expose to us our guilt and sinfulness and make us realize we're lawbreakers, that we don't meet the standard. And therefore, it causes us in that place to recognize, oh no, we need a mediator to help us. We need a savior to help us. And this is what Moses was for Israel and of course, why he then became a type, a picture of a mediator of what ultimately Jesus Christ becomes for you and I. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The Son of God, who was fully God and fully man, being in touch with deity and able to also be in touch with humanity to be a perfect mediator so that he could bring us into right relationship with God and that it would be through Christ and his life as the man Christ Jesus, the God-man, that we would be able to have access to God and relationship with God and have prayer to God and be able to hear God's voice, but it is through the mediation of his Son. Even as here the people, as the law was being given, recognize this reality. And see, this is when the law has done its job. When the law makes someone realize they need a mediator and a savior, and it makes them realize they're sinful, the law has done its job because it's brought us to Christ. It's brought us to salvation. Again, we are not saved by keeping the law. We are not supposed to live under the law. That's not how we live the spiritual life. We live under the law of the liberty of life in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life, the Bible says. We live by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, who Romans 8 says, he has fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for us, 
and as he works in us by his spirit, once he's made us righteous, he then works within us, the spirit of Christ within us, to make us desire to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. See, by nature, I want to lie. By nature, I want to steal. That's my natural human nature. But when Christ enters into your life, the law of the spirit of life sets me free from the law of sin and death. And all of a sudden, there's now a higher law at work in my life. It's like gravity. There's this law of gravity that pushes down. It's keeping us all here on this planet. But the law of life in your body can enable you with power to overcome gravity. To be able to stand up from a seated position. To be able to jump partly off the ground for a moment. Some of us, the law of life is a little bit weaker than others. But the law of life allows you to overcome the law of gravity. The law of the spirit of life in Christ lets you and I overcome the law of the gravity of sin and the law that makes us want to be lawbreakers and gives us the desires Christ fulfills the righteous requirement of the law within to say, you know what, I don't want to lie. I want to be honest now. I want to be faithful to my wife. I don't want to give in to any lustful, distorted desire. I want to be faithful in my marriage. I don't want to have any other God that I give worship and allegiance to. I want to love the Lord my God with my heart and soul and mind and strength. And I, you know, I don't want to steal from anybody. And yeah, well, maybe it's just a small thing. But all of a sudden now, there's this inward conviction within where we, I mean, we don't look at things. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not stealing cars or nothing. I mean, I'm only doing this or, you know, they gave me five hours back too much change. I mean, it was, just, it was their mistake. Now, now there's something within you that's in a small way says, you know, but that's not my five dollars. Maybe yeah, they made a mistake. I make lots of mistakes. But technically, that's their five dollars. So something within all that, and it's that law of the spirit of life within us of Christ, working within us, changing us, that we, as that mediator works within us, have relationship with God, and then understand the purpose of the law in the proper way in our lives. You know, glory to God that Jesus has fulfilled the requirements of the law that we might live by grace and understand the purpose of the law in its proper perspective. Verse 28, he says, Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, Moses, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they've spoken to you. And what was it? Verse 27, they said, Moses, you go hear what God says, and we'll hear it, and then we'll do it. We'll obey whatever we hear you tell us that God said. And God says to Moses, Now Moses, I heard what they said that they're going to hear what I tell you and they're going to obey what I tell you. And he says, verse 28, they are right in what they've spoken. In other words, God says, you know what? They're accurate in what they've said. That's right, God says. They they should obey. That, That is a correct perspective that they would hear and obey. But look at verse 29. God says, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me Always and keep all my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Did you see the lament of God there? God says what they said is correct and accurate. They should hear and obey. That would be the right thing for the Jews to do as God just gave them his law. But God says, oh, oh, that they actually had a heart for that. Oh, that they actually would do that that they actually would be completely obedient. God laments here over the frailty and the fickleness that he knew would be the reality for the Jewish people as so many times 
They would worship other gods. They would neglect the Sabbath for 490 years. They would steal and they would commit adultery and there would be cases where there was murder and bearing false witness and children would rebel against it. And God says, oh, that they actually had a heart to be so obedient that they want to be. To be so obedient as they say they're going to be. And God here just laments from his perspective because he knows, again, the frailty of man's unfaithfulness. And, you know, I look at this and I think to myself, what a wonderful thing, though, because it's such a reminder that God is just as brokenhearted over our sin as we are. And here's the deal. God knows your failure and God knew the Israelites' failure before they ever started failing. God knew it all. God said, I know they want to obey, but I also know how much they're going to disobey. And I know how many times they're going to fail before they ever start failing. Oh, I wish that they would be that obedient. And he says, not only just that it would make me feel good, but look what he says, verse 29 there, that it may be well with them and their children forever. God says, I wish, oh, I wish that they would always obey because God says, so that I could bless them as much as I want to bless them. So I could bless their marriage as much as I want to bless their marriage. And I could bless their children. And I could bless them in all the ways I want to bless them because they would be fully obedient. But God says, I know it won't always happen. And man, what an amazing thing to realize that God is more acquainted with our sin and failures and our tendency to fail than we are. We're shocked. Psalm 103 says, "Remember, he remembers our frame that we're dust. And like a father has pity on his children, so the Lord has compassion upon us. The problem is, is we don't remember that we're dust and that we're prone to wander. I love that song. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel that. Prone to leave the God I love. And here God lamenting of he wants their obedience, but he understands. So he says to Moses, verse 30, Moses, return, tell them to return to their tents. But as for you, stand here by me and I will speak to you all the commandments and statutes and judgments which you shall teach them that they may observe them in the land which I'm giving them to possess. Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. Look, you shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live and that it may be, again, notice, that you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land in which you shall possess. Now, notice the interesting balance here. He says, Moses, I, I, I hear what they say, but I know what's going to happen. Tell them to go home, dismiss them. And he says, Moses, you stick around. You are going to be the mediator. You're going to be the one that's going to mediate between God and man in that role. Again, a type and a foreshadowing of Christ and his mediation for us. And he says, you stay here. I'm going to tell you everything that you're then to teach them and to tell them that when they go into the land that they would be careful. Verse 32, he says, tell them to obey what I've commanded and not to turn aside to the right or to the left. And he says, verse 32, that they would walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that they may live and it would be well with them. Now, I want you to notice this. God knows that they're going to fail, but God doesn't lower the standard. Do you see that? God says, Look, I, I know you're going to fail. I know you're not going to bat. What's perfect batting average? I don't even know. Thousand. thousand. I know they're not going to bat a thousand. But God says, that doesn't mean that every time that pitch comes across the plate, I want you to take the best swing at it that you can. 
And I'm not lowering the standard. Again, God doesn't lower the standard. The standard's still the standard. We are always to aspire towards obedience. We need to be careful. Don't ever begin to abuse the grace of God in such a way. Well, I mean, Jesus covered it all. We're forgiven. God knows we're going to fail. He said it. I heard it on Wednesday night. I'm just fulfilling prophecy, honey. Listen, God never lowers the standard. The standard is obedience. The standard is God says, I don't want you to turn to the right or the left because it's what honors me and God says it's what's going to be best for you. I can bless you best. You'll have the best life, the healthiest life, the most stable life in your personal life, your marriage, your family, your, your society if you aspire to obedience. And listen, ladies and gentlemen, we need more people in our churches, in our families, in our society, in this nation who say, look, I'm not perfect. But by the grace of God, in my little sphere of influence in my world, I will do the best that I can by the grace of God to seek to live righteously, to not turn to the right or the left, and to obey the commands of Scripture, to honor my God, and to let that benefit of that kind of life have its positive influence and effects upon those around me. Let's stand together, let's pray, and turn to our hearts and worship to the Lord. And Look to his grace and presence to strengthen us as we head back into the remainder of this week.